This is Speaking Sea Theology with Chris Green. Well, gentlemen, good afternoon. It's good to good to get the band back together. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a reunion for sure. It really is. We um, thought thought it'd be a good idea to jump back into our unfinished work that is our conversation on Colossians. But before we do, we did start off these conversations in Colossians with, I think, reading something from an old journal Mm. of Chris's that we found earlier this year. And so we thought we might revisit that trend. So did you, did you find anything for us, Chris? Well, yeah, (laughs) this is a, an exercise of, I don't want to say humiliation is not the right word, but it certainly is a reminder not to take myself too seriously. These, these (laughs) entries are from late nineties, early two thousands. So 99, I, I can see Carlton Pearson. There's a Carlton Pearson quote in here. Oh, good, 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 good. Which is kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's, you will never be free from sin until you are free to sin. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> and then I preach below that. I, so I quote it, just to be clear. I'm not affirming it. I just wrote it down. And then uh-huh. underneath it wrote, is this the same as Luther's sin boldly? Question mark. <laughs> I think the answer is no. No, indeed. <laughs> it's not. It's 23 not. years later, we can say no. We can say it's probably not, not what, what we mean. Then there was a, there are wonderful lines that I, I can't quite read. Apparently, I was reading the rule of St. Benedict and then drawing all kinds of conclusions for our church plant from it. Yeah. That's funny. And mm-hmm. listening to Gene Scott sermons. Oh boy. So there are no That's an experience. There's so here's a Gene Scott Gene Scott quote. John and then Carl Jung is in here as well. <laughs> so a pretty eclectic reading and then lots and lots and lots of uh, funny observations like this. Faith is an ability to interpret God. And the willingness to risk on the meanings discovered. So, there you go. <laughs> All right. Faith is an ability to interpret God. I think that I think I probably stand by that. Okay. That's coming out of apparently out of my reading of Hebrews eleven. But yeah, you're never free from sin. You'll never be free from sin until you're free to sin. Apparently. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that. <laughs> It wasn't all crazy. There, there. Here's a page of notes from Julian of Norwich, Revelations. Here are the notes from a lecture that Shirley Guthrie gave that I attended, where he referred to me as a smartass, which is uh, <laughs> oh, in the lecture. In the lecture, yes, he he had forgotten my name, but that's how he referenced me from a previous conversation. He's like, you know, the guy that's uh, and he, yeah, drop that name. I should make a note for our dear listeners that you do have a kind of history with attending lectures and the lecturer or presenter is feeling that way towards you or mistakenly feeling that way towards you. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, this happened with, all the it happened with Robert Jensen. It happened with Rowan Williams. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. So when I first met Robert Jensen in, in the flesh, he referenced the last time we were together, and I was, I was no, that wasn't me. Then when I hear, heard Rowan Williams, at you know in in Manhattan at the at General, he thanked me for the question that I asked. <laughs> I hadn't asked the question, so <laughs> yes, this is a running theme, absolutely. Uh, so here's another wonderful line, and I actually love this. Uh, my younger self, I'm proud of this one. Job is not the central character in the book that bears his name. I like that. That's good. I was reading Paul like Jung's um, little book on Job when I wrote that. 
say that, say that again. Job is not the central character in the book that bears his name. I really like that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, I probably plagiarizing Carl Jung there, but that's yeah. Yeah, that's what I wrote. But I, I mean, immediately makes me think how not that I, there is a book that bears my name, but but I was thinking about what it means to have a Eucharistic life, what it means to have a life centered on Jesus, that somehow I don't become the center of the life that bears my name. I, I, I'm here. That's yeah, immediately that's, what that's made exactly, me think of. That's exactly where I'm going with the with all this. Yeah, that's cool. So thanks for that, Bruce. That was fun. Little trip down memory lane. Yeah, we'll have to have to do it again. Well, where do we want to start today? Let's read the passage, Colossians four one. And lead into it from there. So if you've got it, Brewer, just read read four one and we'll we'll go from there. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Hmm. So let's maybe let's start with go around the room and talk about how we've handled or how we've heard others handle not only this passage but the household code household codes in Paul and that larger theme of mastery and slavery in scripture like perhaps a few anecdotes stories from your experience can we can we say how we've handled it and if you all respond badly we can then say oh that's how we heard someone else handle it yes. does that work yeah. <laughs> that is i would recommend that actually say <laughs> But do it the other way to be safe. Say, I heard someone do this. Yes. And then if we like it, take credit for it. I know a man yeah. once who. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Precisely right. Let's start with you, David. How How is it? How's this text and similar text been handled in your circles? Oh, my goodness. In my circles, uh, badly. Um, I, well, actually, maybe not so much badly, just ignorantly. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. I think what I found most difficult you know, as a listener, as a churchgoer, is hearing these texts spoken about with no sense that there is difficulty here. Uh, right. and, and that probably says something about some of the forums that I've, I've moved in. Like, you know, academically, you know, oh my goodness, these are the passages that keep Pauline scholars up at night, particularly those like me who have gone in to look at the ethical sides of, of, of Paul's work and the social situation of Paul's work. Um, and I could talk a lot about that, but in terms of my church experience, uh, I think the thing that troubles me most is when these verses are used without an awareness that there is a problem here and therefore just ported onto your daily life. And I would say that's mm-hmm. probably what I've found most common and most troubling in my church experience. Brewer, what about you? What would you say your experience has been? Um, I think it was mostly the kind of, the sort of side, an attempt at a sidestep, what I heard growing up, which was a kind of, well, you know, man of his times, but better than most of the men of his times kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, speaking look at the... Paul, speaking of Paul, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, there wasn't, there was no... Um, it was, it was a plain, so it was a plain reading of the text, Mm -hmm. but with this sense that there's something that needs to be done. But of course it wasn't that way through all of the household codes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just slavery is the problem. Not not the rest. Children obeying their parents. Yeah. I mean, those were right. Those were quoted all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Bill, what about for you? I, uh, I've heard the like idea that this can be translated in our time as employers and employees. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this was thought as a way, like if you are a boss and you have employees, this is talking to you about how you treat them. And if you're an employee who has a boss, 
this is the way you're supposed to treat them. Uh, I heard a lot. And, you know, in, in my particular corner of the Christian world, I heard a lot about a lot of work done for the word slaves, either being called servants mm-hmm. and having it overemphasized that this is talking about servants, not slaves, which I always found it interesting that a lot of work was being done to transfer the word slave out of what it would, what it, what it feel, feels like it means when we hear it, but no work was ever done to the word master. Yes. That just meant master, right? <laughs> right. So we're going to leave that. But then, you know, I also heard a lot of teaching about the bond servant, the one who after mm. seven years chooses to have his ear pierced on the, at the doorway of the master's house and Jesus is the door. And so this is the person who's choosing to connect himself or herself to Christ through this master. And they're, they're not a slave who's been coerced or kidnapped. They're a willing participant in this relationship. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that kind of slavery. It's not the, it's not the bad kind. It's the willing kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I've heard all of those. I, I know I've also heard and read some even more terrifying ones, but the, I think what we've described here, that's the lay of the land I'm familiar with too. So I, I think, let me, let me propose this and get your responses to it. So I, I think there are four ways we want to avoid reading this passage and similar passages. And I'm going to focus for now on master slave relationships in the whole of scripture, starting here with Colossians four one, and I, I want to—I'll riff on a few other passages along the way. And of course, this does quickly spill over into all other kinds of relationships because you can't talk about this one without talking about the others. But I want to focus on mastery and slavery. And Bill, your observation about not redefining master even while we're redefining slave, I think is really telling. It's one of the things we need to come back to again and again in this conversation. But I think one of the things, and this is in no particular order, but let me start with this. We do not want to take this. We we don't want to bring a reading of the text that suggests because we know slavery is evil and it is, and scripture speaks about slavery in ways that at least seem to be accepting of it, if not, condoning or even commanding it that therefore scripture is evil and should be rejected right so i just want to name that as something we don't want to do like we yes we know that slavery is evil yes scripture speaks about slavery in ways that are troubling for us that does not mean that scripture is evil and needs to be rejected out of hand similarly there are others who who would say slavery cannot be evil because scripture speaks of it in ways that are accepting or even condoning, perhaps even commanding it. And therefore we just, we just have to swallow what is offensive and accept that for God, slavery is not an evil. I also want, that's not an approach we should be taking. Right. So like those, those two ways need to be just bracketed out named, but rejected. Another mistake I think we can make and and should do everything we can to avoid making is to approach these texts. I mean, before I go into those other two, are we all agreed on that? Those, I I assume we all are kind of, no one's going to argue in defense of either of those models. Right. Because if, if we are, we probably need to stop recording and have a conversation off the air. As we say, I think the third option we want to avoid taking up is to treat the Bible, these statements in the Bible as something we've outgrown. Like, yeah. And this is to your point Brewer about treating Paul like a man of his times, right? That, you know, what he says about Jesus, that's really trustworthy. What he says about faith, that's trustworthy, but you know, he lived at a particular time and what he says about slavery and women, you know, we know better now, right? we don't want to have a model of quote unquote progressive revelation in which some of what scripture gives us is 
trustworthy and reliable and we need to continue to affirm it. And some of what it gives us is benighted and primitive and we need to outgrow it. Like that model, as attractive as it is, and as many of my friends who argue for it, it's a dead end. You cannot use that model. I'm convinced at least. And there may be some difference differences between us around this table on that point. But one of the reasons I think we cannot accept it is that it is in virtually every model, it is tied to anti-Semitism because that progressive revelation makes the Jews, the, the primitive people we're outgrowing as Christians. It's very hard to find models of progressive revelation that aren't anti-Semitic, anti-Judaistic, anti-law, that, that don't contrast Old Testament and New Testament. And of course, I'm, I'm going to stand against you know, all the versions of that. Anybody want to comment on that? There's another way I think we also want to avoid, but this is a little, the first two are easy to name and reject. This one's a little harder because progressive revelation models are so prevalent. And, and it's hard, right? Precisely because I think so many approach it that way for really good reasons. Yes. For right. good Precisely because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With good yeah, motives. Yeah, yeah. Right. Good motives. But, but I mean, of course, I agree that there's it's it's without by and large without this sense or realization of actually what it's rooted in and where where it kind of can't help but go. Hmm. Yeah. I've heard the progressive reading described in terms of trajectory, not so much in terms of what we can continue to keep and what we can kind of shed off in the scriptures, but in terms of all of it and its trajectory. So like, where would it be like when you start in at the beginning of the Bible and you see where it's towards the epistles and the end of the Bible, if that trajectory continued, where would it be now? What do you think about that? I think that's the most sophisticated form of it. And there's something to that, right? That God's work in the world takes time to find its, footing, so to speak. It takes time to, to take root in our lives. So there's something to that. I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. I just don't want that way of thinking to work back as a model on which texts we take seriously, right? Because what you end up with, if you take that approach, is you end up saying, well, some texts in the canon, they're in a sense, fully scripture, right? Like we can take those with absolute confidence as the word of God. But other texts are kind of mixed with the opinion of the people of the time who were when, when it was first written or first read, first heard. And we can't quite take those things seriously. Right. So what I don't want to do is I, I do agree that God's work in history takes time. I don't think that we want to reverse engineer a, a hermeneutic that tells us which scriptures belong in which category mm. of you know, how developed the revelation is. So for instance, one of the most common arguments here is, you know, Israel's law is a primitive beginning. By the time we get to Israel's prophets, there's this realization of, uh, of, of a God who is for all the nations, not just for Israel, a God of mercy, not just a God of justice and so on and so on and so on. I mean, not only is that historically mistaken, that's not actually how those texts came to be written it's also theologically disastrous, right? Like you, you cannot, you, and again, it's incredibly common for people to make that argument, but I think we have to, even giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, making these kind of recognitions that there's something to that claim that God's work in history takes time. We, we can't let that become a hermeneutic, like a, a way of parceling out, you know, scripture so that, parts of the Bible become you know, fully inscripturated. Let me, let me give a couple of examples that might get at this. I was in a conversation for several years with some folks who were interested in kind of house church models. And they made essentially the opposite argument to the trajectory argument. And we were talking specifically about the pastoral. So first and second Timothy and Titus. And they were arguing that according to Acts, the churches had a plurality of eldership and they met at homes. Right? So if you look at Paul's epistles, his earliest epistles, and you look at 
Acts, what you get is a picture, according to them, you get a picture of churches that are meeting in homes with plural eldership. You don't have bishops, you don't have priests, you don't have deacons. You've got a plurality of elders meeting with small groups of people in homes, sharing a meal together, not a Eucharist, but the Lord's Supper as a full family meal. And according to this reading, by the time we get to the pastoral epistles, the church is already starting to become unfaithful. So on that, on their reading, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are a sign that the church is losing its original design. Right? So they bracketed out anything 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus had to say about church leadership because they saw that as the move toward what would become Roman Catholicism. Right? Mm. That if you just follow that trajectory... And interestingly enough, I found out later that in 1914, at the Assemblies of God, the first meeting of the Assemblies of God, there was a man who who made this argument, William Shell was his name, he made the argument that if you follow the trajectory of the pastorals, and then you read, say, Ignatius of Antioch, you can see that we're moving toward an Episcopal model of a bishop flanked by priests serving each local congregation and that that's what God was doing. Right. So it's a kind of an affirmation of that trajectory, but it gets rejected as a a non-biblical model. So I, I think that's another way in which we're confusing the pattern we've made of history. So we're looking at the historical account. We're simplifying it down to a pattern and then using that pattern as a hermeneutical lens. Mm. That's what I want to reject, right? Whichever way you read it. History doesn't actually play out that simply. But even if it did, that's there's no justification in using that simple pattern to sort which texts we take it seriously. You can't you just cannot read Acts as having more authority for the church than First Timothy. Right. Right. You, I, I at least again, that's what I'm contending. You can't read the Acts and First Timothy as having more authority than Deuteronomy does. Like it's the whole of scripture understood through the whole of the tradition, not particular passages that your hermeneutic has made central. Mm. Well, I, I what, think, what are you thinking at this point? When I first encountered ideas of trajectory hermeneutics and, and progressive hermeneutics, I, I, I see the appeal of it. But I think it's significant that there's only a very specific group of people in a very specific part of history, in a very specific part of the world, would ever come up with this as a hermeneutical model. Right. And, That's right. And and it's us, right? Because our because it's rooted in our, if I can use the world word worldview, that that we yeah. are getting better, that we are on this progressive pursuit. And and so whether it's the trajectory hermeneutic that says Oh, I can see points A and B in Scripture. Therefore, I can I can guess where points C and D and E are going to. Or the yep. model that's more familiar to me as a Pentecostal, which is Acts is the pinnacle and everything else is back. That's actually still a trajectory hermeneutic because it, it assumes that between me right now and when Luke puts his pen down finishing Acts, everything in between that and me was inferior as an interpretive lens or a hermeneutical sure. model because those people between me and Luke have nothing to offer me in this interpretation process. And That's both right. of them actually are rooted in if secular arrogance, actually, secular Western arrogance. Completely agree. Um, so that, that would be that would be my take on that. Yeah. That's I, a great point, man. Yeah. yeah. What's up? That's great. So then Two problems there, right? Just to reiterate for everybody, like there's the problem of the way you're reading history, which is a mistake because history is not that simple and God's God is faithful in every generation. So like there's a, there's a mistaken reading of history there. And then a second mistake is applying that oversimplified pattern created from that bad reading of history to the text of scripture to create a hierarchy of texts or a canon within the canon. And so we want to reject that progressive revelation or regressive revelation, I guess, in the in the opposite form that it gets in Pentecostal readings, the, the restorationist reading, which is, you know, from the close of the canon until the beginning of our movement, everything was going to hell and back. Right. But then I think there's a fourth way, and this is harder to name, or at least it's harder for me to name. 
and that is to try to to rush too quickly to translate the language of the New Testament into something comparable. I, I think we can do this in a couple of ways. One is to try to say, well, in the ancient world, slavery wasn't what it would be in the modern world. And so when Paul is speaking here of masters and slaves, he's affirming an institution or at least accepting of an institution that doesn't have the evils in it that, that we know from modern colonialist slavery practices, you know, chattel slavery. And there's something to that. There's something to that, but it still misses the point of reading the text. Well, I think, and you know, that's kind of vital to recognize that just because the slavery of Paul's world is not identical to the slavery of the modern world doesn't mean, first of all, that, that slavery in Paul's world was not horrific evil because in many cases it absolutely was. Right? I mean, there's unbelievable dehumanization of slaves in the ancient world, including the ancient Christian world. And it, even if it's not exactly the same evil that we see in chattel slavery, it's not also some benign, you know, employee employer relationship either. An employee employer relationship is not benign in many cases, right? I mean, that's that's another mistake we're making, I think, when we do that. And well, it's and it's, a, it's a valid yeah. observation, I think, to say that slavery across history is a different thing. Yeah. <laughs> But yes. but it's simply an observation. It, 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 the problem is, I think, in the way that you're speaking about this, or the way that you have encountered this, is that observation is offered as an interpretation, and and it, right. that's not helpful <laughs> because that's right. once that's we've right. accepted that Greco-Roman slavery is different than what went on in the Americas and in 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 Africa, we we haven't solved the problem of what the heck do we do with Colossians four one? But too often it's presented as if the problem is now solved. If, if that follows. That's exactly what I'm saying. And how do we read Colossians 4.1 as a word Jesus is saying to us? So like the, how, I don't know how to name this fourth model we want to reject, but it's, it maybe it's a historicist account that tries to explain away the problem of the text by treating it as a historical problem or, treating it as a contextual one rather than recognizing though, if we're right in affirming scripture as scripture, somehow Colossians four one is a word to us. It's a word to you and me. And it's a word that the living Christ is speaking. How do we hear Colossians four one that way? I think that becomes to me, that's the, that's the crucial question. And not so we're not trying to save Paul. We're not trying to, yeah. to save Colossians. We're not trying to save the scriptures. We're acknowledging that this that it is troubling. It's troubling in in any number of ways. But we're trusting that somehow this, whatever Paul means by it, whatever a, a historian might make of the text, that as scripture this is a word addressed to us as the people of God. And what happens when we begin there? Do you think there's a way, Chris, and I'm, well, just ask you, do you think there's a way that we can faithfully ask critical questions of the text without disrespecting it? So in the sense of like, just off the top of my head, when I hear masters treat your slaves justly and fairly, there's the only thing that comes to my mind is, well, there's only one way to do that. Make them not slaves anymore. Right. But then after the comma, it says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so now it's like, it's relating, it's relating this earthly master to God, who's also a master, which makes me, that makes me get frustrated with the way the text is worded. Mm -hmm. Because saying that you also have a master in heaven almost feels like it would be too easy for the master on earth to validate his mastery because God is also a master. So I'm being like him. Well, this is it. This is, this is the nerve, right? This is the, the point, the crux of the matter. Scripture is speaking in analogy, right? God has taken up 
our language to speak to us about that which is beyond us, right? That we we cannot, we don't have words for it. There are no words for it. So God takes up the words we have to speak about that for which we have no words. And you're, this is oversimplified, but as a way to start the conversation, we are either then going to take all of that analogy, all of those connections God is making for us, and assume we know the meaning of what God is showing us by extrapolating out from what we already know about our experience. So in other words, in this case, I know what mastery is and I know what slavery is. I know how masters and slaves relate. So when God says, or when, when Paul says, God is my master, well, then I, then I know that God relates to slaves, us, the way that I see masters relating to slaves around me, just on a larger scale, right? So it's kind of taking what I know and extrapolating out to the largest possible and the furthest reach, the largest degree. I think that's exactly what we do not want to do, right? What we want to do is start with the revelation of God in Jesus. What what does the story, the life, the death of Jesus of Nazareth and the church's witness to him tell us about who this God is, who is master, and how he masters us, so to speak? And what does he consider just and fair? Once we know that, then we rework what we think we know about mastery and slavery. Hmm. So it, it has to work. Again, it has to be apocalyptic. It has to be revelation. Hmm. It's not God affirming the world as we know it by ensuring us that he's the force that undergirds all of that order. We cannot begin with the world as we experience it and then affirm God is the power that makes the world as we know it work the way it works. That's not apocalyptic. That's not revelation. That's not salvation. That, that is God as the, the force that makes this world work the way it works. The world of violence and corruption, the world of domination and in that world, mastery and slavery does absolutely work a particular way. But that's not what we see with Jesus. And he is unbelievably explicit that it's not that way with him, right? I mean, hopefully all of us are thinking about that passage. Jesus says, among the Gentiles, those in power lorded over those who are their subjects. But it must not be that way among you. Right? It must not be that way among you. Jesus said, you know, who's greater? The one who sits at the table and the, or the one who serves. But I am among you as one who serves. Hmm. So what we have with Jesus, and I, I tried to get at this a few years ago in a sermon I preached at Sanctuary. God is not a master. Like what we think of as mastery, when God, who is Lord, who is master, comes among us, his life looks like the life of a slave, not the life of a master. Right. So when, when you translate, so to speak, God's mastery into human life, it looks like the life of this man, Jesus. It is this, the life of this man, Jesus. And that is a life of a, of a, a poor, prophetic, itinerant preacher who ends up killed between thieves outside the city. Like He, he does not look like... A master, right? He he's someone who rides a donkey, not a warhorse, and like that, we we have to begin with that if we're going to get any of this right. I think. So this essentially this is Paul's this is Paul's project, though that you you like. I I think, uh, and I'm very cautious of being the Pauline scholar, so everyone assumes I'm trying to defend Paul, and that's not what I'm doing here. But what you're describing right there, uh, Chris, I think is what. Uh, like when Richard Hayes talks about the the sort of what is the sub narrative that's holding Paul's idea of the gospel together, I think what you've just said there is exactly that. Right? That that once you, if you think about, and again, I'm I'm all four of the models you've given us. I, I I'm conscious of as I say these things. So if it sounds like I'm drifting into one of them, I'm not. Right? But 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 here's you know here's the thing that I think is significant. Once you've premised 
that the cross is a fundamental central component of your story the cross which which the roman institution set as an image of shame right mm-hmm. and you're saying no 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 this is an image of glory unless i am glorified when you know unless i'm lifted up I, the son of man's not glorified this sort of language that's absolutely yeah. pinnacle to early christianity yeah. i think where we stop short in in a lot of our readings of early christianity is to see the extent to which paul reconstructs the entire world under this premise that if the cross is a point of glory, then everything else I look at must be upside down, right? Or go exactly to your point. It's not that Jesus isn't a master. It's that our view of being a master is so corrupted that when we look at Jesus, to to, to just remake your point, we can't see how he's a master. He looks like a slave. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Paul's doing that in Colossians for us. I, I I think I think you could... And I'm not trying to critique what you've just said, but everything you just said, you can get to in Colossians 1, 2, and 3, right? Um, the, the problem is in most of our readings, we go straight to Colossians 4 and go, oh, this is problematic. I mean, like exegetically, there's, there's two questions I think n- need wondering about. One would be in chapters 1 through 3, how has Paul consistently railed against our take on the world? He's ended up with don't touch, don't taste, right? Um, you know, you're one in Christ, including slaves and free. He's even dropped a really solid ver- uh, burn just three verses before. Slaves, obey your master's katasarka, according to the flesh. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and he doesn't keep repeating that, but that's now the premise. I'm talking yeah. about... Katasarka masters. By the way, Paul has things to say about Katasarka. <laughs> Few of them are good, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, in, in, in that process. But I also think in a, in a group and a table like this, I think we need to ask the question, as for Paul, the logical follow-up to the statement, masters t- treat your slaves justly and fairly, and I think, Bill, your question about what is just and fairly, I think is absolutely right. And I think in Philemon, we see Paul really premise this as well. But for Paul, the logic is, oh, and the next thing I need to say is devote yourselves to prayer. <laughs> and and I don't think we can see the logic in that very easily, but I mm. wonder sometimes if your story that you've premised, Chris, plus the fact that the where we go from this is prayer, is going to help us exegete Paul, not to erase the problem here, but actually help us see that I think he's as aware of this problem as, as we are, if not oh, more absolutely. so, because uh, every absolutely. trip to the store, he sees the reality of slavery. I mean, sorry, that was a lot, but I don't know if that no, is... That's, that's right. No, I, I'm with you 100%. What, what were you saying, Bill? I was just thinking through uh, what you said about the idea that we, and, and David, that was fantastic. I don't want to just talk over that. That was fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, how when we, we hear a word, we, we take as absolute our experience with that word and then just figure out ways to say that God can do those things better than we can for better reasons mm-hmm. than we can. But I was, and then you mentioned, but we have to see Paul using those words as apocalyptic. And I was thinking about in, in the book of Revelation, when John hears the number 144,000, when, when we hear that number, when we hear any closed off number, no matter how big or small it is, we immediately gravitate to exclusivity, you know, like a click type mentality. But when John turns to see the number that, the angel was talking about, he sees a limitless multitude of people that cannot be numbered. Yes. Yes. So again, when we hear a closed off number, our brain says exclusivity, limitation, um, exclusion. But then when John turns to see that closed off number, it's anything but a closed off number. And then probably, and you and I have had extensive conversations about this. When he hears the lion, probably a lot of images of what that lion could be are conjured up in his mind. But when he turns, he sees a lamb. Yes. So are those, are those two moments in revelation being an apocalyptic book? Are those two, is that sort of what you're talking about here where Paul wants you to, he wants you to hear the word master. But then when you turn to look at the master in heaven, he's numbered among criminals on a cross. Like, is that what's happening? I am saying that. And I, what I'm saying, yes, yes, absolutely. And that's a word we need to hear, right? So I, I'm not articulating this as clearly as I would like, but 
I think there's a way of reading Paul that sees Colossians, say Colossians 4.1, the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, and similar texts. Sees them as a problem that's solved one way or another by explaining what Paul could have meant. But I'm, I'm saying, yes, that's a fine enterprise, but that's not what we're doing here. The question is, how does this apocalypse happen to me as a reader? Okay. Like that, that apocalyptic, I think absolutely Paul, historically, the man Paul, was confronted by that apocalypse, and he's writing from that place, knowing, knowing it in that way. But I'm not engaging the man Paul. I'm engaging these words as the words of the Spirit to me, to us. And that apocalyptic awareness has to come to me. How is this a word that I'm supposed to hear? And so I think it looks something like this. If I'm troubled by it, if I'm troubled, let me, maybe this is a, we'll get at what I'm trying to name here and struggling to articulate. I come to this text and I see, oh no, Paul is not as condemning as slavery as he should be. He's not as harsh with masters as he should be. He's talking about God in ways he shouldn't be. And I'm putting myself in a position of mastery over the text Mm. and mastery over the meaning of scripture. I'm condescending to Paul and scripture and to God. Like, this is not the text as it should be. This is, you know, Holy Spirit, you should not have inspired this. Christians, you should not have been believing this. Paul, you should not have been saying this. And I'm now in the position of the master. And what needs what needs to apocalypse in my life is that arrogance. What needs to be apocalypsed in my life is that arrogance. Hmm. That I would come at a text like this thinking I know better. Now, I think we're right to be troubled by it, but to move from being troubled to the position of superiority over the text, over the Lord of the text, and over the people of the text. That's what has to be confronted as sin. If you're not troubled by it, something is terribly wrong. But if you move from being troubled to the air of superiority, like that, that assumes this should never have been written or whatever else, right? That's where I think the apocalypse needs that. Is that getting, I don't know if I'm, still don't know if I'm being clear about that. I just don't want this to be only a conversation about what Paul meant. It's what does this text do to us right now? Brewer, it looked like you were going to say something. Oh, I think I'm I'm just amening over here. Like, I'm just so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it. it is apocalyptic. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's, yeah, judgments on us being rendered, right, precisely by our, approaches and interpretations and you know but also what we want to do with or not do you know with Paul I mean I it's it's incredible I you know I've kind of I won't stand on this soapbox long but I mean I think I I have often heard and have personally been accused of you know having a low view of scripture for making this point and what I'm trying to say over and over again is like no 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 this is not a low view of scripture this is actually taking scripture as the inspired word of God deadly seriously in our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that you, and again, I want to say like, we should be troubled by things like this. We need to be troubled by it, but that troubledness can then be expressed humbly and searchingly. Like we can let that troubledness turn to prayer and seeking quietness, attention, or it can turn to a kind of condescending rage or a condescending dismissal. And that's what I think has to be exposed, confronted. Right. So like there's a, there's a passage in Maximus where he, he warns against people who fall in love with the letter of the word. And he says, they're, they're like those who grasp at the garment but they're left holding the garment and Christ escapes. So he, he's, he's appealing to Potiphar's wife, like grasping at Joseph. 
and Joseph escapes and she's left holding his garment. And he said that there's a way in which we can read scripture, Kadasarka, right? We can read scripture after the flesh and we're just, we're holding the words, but the living Christ has escaped us. Hmm. And I think when we come to passages that trouble us, that's almost always what we end up doing. We end up grappling one way or another with the words that are offensive, but we never, or I'll say never, but we rarely let that offense move us to an encounter with the living Christ, where we're realizing this is not about Christians in the ancient world or the do, the predominant reading that Christians have given it through time. This is about me, about us. Mm. And what I'm doing with this text is laying bare my heart, laying, you know, in the language of James, it's my image that's showing up in this text. I'm saying a lot about myself in, in what I'm saying the text does and doesn't mean. And, and this, this is this is why biblical scholars need friends who are theologians, right? Because <laughs> I love the way you're phrasing and working on this, and and because this is, I think, what I'm wrestling with about this question about chapter four, verse two, right? The the, the why why he why ends prayer? all of this with devote yourself to prayer, keep alert in it, and be thankful, right? Because. At some level, the, the, this reading of the text is always bringing out my assumption that, that the primary problem for me in this text is the question of slavery, when one of the problems might be that I keep positioning myself as master. That's, <laughs> and, I think that's exactly right, yes. And, and, and he's even given me that warning of being a master catasarchan, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm going to keep missing that. And, and regardless of which of even the four of the hermeneutical models you threw up, that they all fall into that same category that I know what's going on here. Paul maybe doesn't know what's going on here, or even if he does, I'm still the one declaring that. And I love this call to devotion to prayer to break that in me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think actually almost at any level that you read that text, because this, even if you read it, a purely social and contextual reason, I mean, slavery and mastership is still a problem today. Oh, absolutely. That, that reading is still the, the one that we all get trapped by. And I almost wonder, uh, can I imagine that that's exactly why verse two is there? It's like, okay, take a pause. That was a pretty intense conversation about slaves, masters, authority, power, privilege. We just need to pause and take a devotion to prayer at this moment. I, I'm, I'm playing well, with it there, but no, 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 that's no, I think this is, this is key. If you go back to chapter three, Right. And you just like follow the, the flow of Paul's thought here, which, again, I don't want to keep it in historicist terms, but let's start there and then bring it to, to bear on us. So he's he starts with, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Right. So mm -hmm. turn turn your attention toward the apocalypse that Christ has brought about. Mm -hmm. you, you have to attend to things that cannot be seen. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. So the re your reality according to the flesh is one thing. Your reality according to the spirit is hidden. Mm. And it's hidden in Christ. So turn your attention there. And because of that, you should treat the, the earthly, that which belongs to the order of this world, not, not the physical or the material. This is not some quote-unquote Gnostic call. He's saying... Treat the things that belong to the order of the world as you know it now, under the, the present forces of darkness. Treat those things as dead. Put them to death. Rid yourself of these things. Anger, malice, obscene speech. Don't lie to each other. And then he gives that image of stripping off the old mm -hmm. and putting on the new. Right. So stripping off the old order of things and putting mm -hmm. on the, the revelation of Christ. You're, you're, you're meant to not only look to Christ where your life is hidden, but to begin to, to let that cover you, let that And, show. and this isn't just in his mind, because this is baptismal talk here, isn't it? So this oh, is absolutely. Sacramental. It is absolutely sacramental. And in this, this renewing of our image, there is no difference between Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all. Christ is all and in all. So this is, again, not something he sees as happening at the very end of history, the way we imagine the the apocalypse and the coming, but is a renewal that's happening now in which these distinctions get totally overdone, overturned and undone because Christ is all and in all. Then he says, so you've been chosen in Christ. You're to put on this heart of compassion, kindness, humility, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, put on love, which is the bond of unity, right? So this renewal looks like this kind of life, which is a life of co-suffering, intercession, care, gentleness, a life of peace. And that has to rule. The peace of Christ has to rule in the one body. And where that peace rules in the one body, Christ's word is heard. It's spoken and heard, right? Then we come to wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters. So Paul has already said there's a renewal of an image happening to this body. And he's speaking to the whole body as a body, knowing that in that room there are wives, husbands, children, you know, widows, orphans, elderly, children, infirm, what you know, what we would call disabled or people who are chronically ill and slaves and masters, all of them in one room, all of them he's addressing as in Christ, having told them already in Christ, all of these differences are overdone, overcome and undone because Christ is all and in all. So when he's telling them kind of how to behave with each other, he's describing for them how the renewal is going to take place. He is not saying God made the world the way it is and he wants to keep it that way. A world in which the strong survive and the weak are overwhelmed. Rightly so, right? Not a world in which masters rule and slaves obey. Not a world in which husbands dominate their wives and their children. That's the world we know. That's precisely the world, he says, needs to be put to death. But the way in which you put it to death is how you live in the relationships the world gives you. So go back to wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And all of the weight in that sentence is on as is fitting in the Lord. Right? How does, how does this, your relationship to your husband under the order of, wor- of the world as Rome has made it, how do you live with your husbands in such a way that the renewal can come? Hmm. Right? So Paul is, is a, one way of thinking of this is this is Paul's battle plan, or to use a less militant image, th- this is Paul's game plan for bringing about the renewal, cooperating with the renewal that's coming because of their baptismal identity, because of what Christ has accomplished. And if we follow that line of thought, wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, it's striking that he starts with wives and ends with masters. So he's, he's already, he doesn't start with masters. He doesn't start with husbands. And he speaks to each group and, and gives them agency. Wives, you may do this. Children, you may do this. Fathers, you may do this. And then we come last of all to the word you've pointed out, David, devote yourselves to prayer. Hmm. All of you now together have to pray. So if what he says at the beginning about the renewal is true and his aim is to make it so that we can all pray together, then however we're treating each other has to be in ways that are fitted to that. And the praying, I think, David, is to say that's the true part of you. Like, masters and slaves, however you relate, you must at the end of the day be able to pray together the same prayer. Hmm. Like the master and slave, if you're going to have that relationship under the the rules of the world as you know it, katasarka, at the end of the day, the only way to do it Christianly is for the master and slave to be able to kneel down and pray the same prayer. Hmm. And if you can't do that, then you're not living according to the spirit. You are living according to the flesh. You're not putting to death the things of the world. You're instead crucifying Christ afresh. And the renewal is not happening. You're, you're not stripping off the old. Right? So 
to me, that's just true of what Paul, the man in the ancient world was saying. Like, I don't think that's like our saving Paul from himself. I think that's exactly the argument that he's making. I think the point for us, not to go on and on here, but I think the point for us is to let that reality confront how quickly we were, how quickly we move, not those of us in this conversation, but how often we quickly move to judging Paul for doing something he explicitly is not doing. Right? Like if you just read the text and let it say what it says, he's clearly never affirming slavery of, of any kind. He's yeah. saying that that has been done away with in Christ because Christ is all and in all and a renewal is happening that, and, a, and you are called to a life of shared prayer. That's to me clearly what the text is saying. The fact that we don't see it is a, a telling on our arrogance. It's telling mm. on our presumption, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that, Chris. And, and yeah, I, I, I yes, <laughs> yes and amen. <laughs> it, it is, it is, to me, this is the genius of scripture. And, and I, I want to say the genius of Paul, that he, I think he does that so well. Yes. And we are so buffered in our refusal to see it that it's easier for us to to name names against Paul than to wrestle with what does this then do in me? <laughs> like, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? You know? mm-hmm. So let's let's shift to that then. Let's talk a little bit about how this. What is the Spirit saying to us about this text and related texts, like so-called troubling texts? I mean, maybe, you know, very pedestrian level here, but there's a lot of casual talk and it's, it's creepy because I had a conversation with somebody about this when I was on vacation and then my, uh, you know, that spying little algorithm seems to think it's funny to send me clips of preachers preaching things that make me mad. Because I, I think I think the geniuses behind the algorithm realize if you send me something I hate, I'll pay so much more attention to it than something I, I enjoy. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I've been inundated with these conversations and then seeing things online about phrasing like, like simple phrases like, all right, you know, once you get married, you know, Christ has to be first before your spouse mm. and then your marriage has to be first before your children yeah. And there's like these like, you know, bold, confident, like swagger infested comments about this hierarchy of like God above spouse and spouse above children and all of these threats that can happen if the, if that hierarchy isn't modeled. Yeah. And I've even heard this conversation talked about even in the Trinity. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Right. And. There's there's much to say there, but it seems as if the uh, Colossians four one, I don't most people I know would never acknowledge slavery as good, but they would want and maybe don't realize that they take the model of it and apply it gently to the other relationships that exist in life, subserviency as opposed to slavery, right. And I've, I've yep. noticed in the last, specifically in the last few days, I don't think it, I'm just noticing it. I think it's prophetically alarming to me now, this obsession with needing a hierarchy like this to feel stable. And you, Chris, you had a conversation. I think I'm saying her last name, right? It was with Beth Felker. Yeah. Beth Felker Jones. Yeah. It's, it's a few podcasts down. If you're listening to this one, <laughs> You need to listen to it. It's an excellent conversation to whoever's listening to this. But one of the things she said, I was mowing my lawn when I was listening to it. And I like almost mowed over my foot when she said this, like it, it stymied me. And I think it, it was just beautiful the way that she articulated it. She said, when you, when you go into the disciplines, the consequences, she said that God was giving to Adam and Eve in Genesis three, you know, the ground's going to produce thorns it's a, it's a consequence. There's going to be pain and childbearing consequence to the serpent. You're going to crawl around on your belly consequence. She said, how is it that when he says husbands will rule over their wives, 
all of a sudden we've taken that one statement in a list of consequences and made it a blessing. Mm-hmm. And we've praised it as if it's not in a list yep. of consequences of what we've done to the world. And now the world has become a place that operates differently than God wanted it to. But we've taken that one consequence and held it up as if you obey this, it'll be a blessing. And I just yep. was I was dumbfounded about how he said it so simply. And I was yeah. like, how have I never heard that before? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what what makes me what what concerns me is not well obviously it concerns me the people who want to throw the verse out and say I would have written it better than Paul and obviously the people who say I agree with Paul we should have slaves because that's not what he's saying either but what what makes me nervous now and maybe you can speak to this is the people who will quickly say well slavery is not good but that model that hierarchy model we need this for our homes to be right that's right and if anybody comes out from it if you if you put your marriage if you put your kids above your marriage, then they're going to run the show and you're going to raise spoiled brats and it's mm-hmm. going to be disastrous. Why are we so obsessed with it? One, the hierarchy model Two, what is the thing that should be there in place of that? Mm-hmm. I think, man, obviously we would need a long time to answer this adequately, but as a, as a place to start, I'm, here I'm describing specifically Christians in in our worlds, the worlds that the four of us move in. I think there's always a, a kind of unbridgeable chasm between the way we actually live and the theories we take up to explain why we live the way we do. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the, the gap between what we genuinely experience and what we say when people ask us what we believe is it's impossible to exaggerate the contradictions there. <laughs> so for example, I think most of the people that I've grown up with, if you ask them to talk about the order of the home, they will talk about male headship. They will talk about, you know, the godly order that God has given, you know, think of the Bill Gothard, you know, the, the, the man is the priest of the home. Who's the umbrella of authority under which the wife and the children thrive and so on. I think that a lot of people, that's the language they have. When you ask them a direct question, they will talk in similar, they'll talk along those lines. But their lives do not look like that. That's not actually how they live. That's not what actually happens in their homes. Yes, that's right. Because their homes, first of all, are mostly, they're even in healthy, even in healthy settings, they're rarely the, the the dynamics are too complex, right? To be reduced to who's the head of the home. Like very, very, very few people can can and do live like that. Is that you, are you making sense of what I'm saying? Like I think there's a gap there. So the first thing we kind of have to acknowledge is even people who are talking like that, why are they talking like that? Given that their own lives don't actually look like it. Sure. Like <laughs> I don't know that anybody who's ever said to me, you know. Pastor Bill, we have to we have to put our marriages above our kids. Like they couldn't articulate what that looks like if they tried. That's right. That's exactly right. It sounds comforting in some weird way, but they couldn't articulate what it actually means. Like if you ask them to give me five examples of what that looks like, they'd lose it after one. Yeah, yeah. And they, and know? again, they their own lives do not bear that out in any any day today experience contradicts what they're saying there. So I think one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is why do we appeal to models like that so quickly and easily? And I think at least one of the reasons is the simplicity of that model brings a kind of comfort to us. And because we have never or rarely been pushed to think deeply, we're not a very truthful people. We do not feel the need for what we're saying to actually relate to the truth of our lives. We just say whatever we want to say to feel better. And I don't mean that cynically or hatefully. I I really do think it's a condition we have. I think we are by and large untruthful people and we feel no, we don't, we don't think we need to be accurate (laughs) about what is actually happening. 
We just want to, to say things that make us feel better. And now that leads to the question, why would that model ever make us feel better? Like, e- even if, even if you grant everything I've said up to this point, why is there comfort in talking about that kind of rigid hierarchy in which there's domination and control? Because it's absolutely false to what the scriptures say and what Jesus lived and what the saints show us. Right. So I think that's a question worth asking. I hmm. think this draws us into the questions, just going back to the last conversation on the podcast with uh, Jason about Galatians. I think this is what Paul's beginning to imagine when he talks about the faith of Jesus Christ or the, or the, this question that we talk, that we talk about in Pauline circles that Jason raised about, is it faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ? What, what Chris is describing there, this idea that there is a model rooted in the world that, that even when we encounter Jesus and we go, okay, well, we need to think about masters and slaves. Uh, what we try and do is replace one hierarchical model with another hierarchical model and and we just think it's a sanctified version of that hierarchical model because there's something in us that's drawn to them i think brueggemann would talk about it as something to do with scarcity that that power is something we must fight to to hold to trust in christ to read that text that way when paul talks about trusting in christ one of the things you are now trusting in is essentially is that you're going to live without those models, right? Think about the text that Chris began with. Um, you, you know, the one in Matthew 20, you know, the rulers and Gentiles, Lord, over them and their great men exercise authority. But then Jesus' line to that is, it shall not be so among you, right? Uh, and, and what we seem to keep doing within the church is replacing one hierarchical model with a different hierarchical model, just assuming that this one at least doesn't have the problem about with, with men and women, or this one doesn't have the problem with slaves and masters. When I think the problem is that we're not fully trusting in Christ when he says it shall not be so amongst you. Brewer, does that make sense at all? <laughs> it does make sense. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm, gosh, there's obviously so much more to say here. (laughs) I'm wondering if we should do a part two, (laughs) wrap it and do a part two. Does that make, what do you think? I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. Okay. Great. Let's do that then. All right. So I guess we'll be back with part two of this conversation and then who knows, maybe part three, four, 11, 11, 11, maybe. Well, hopefully soon. <laughs> yes. Considering we had a two and a half month break, I think, between the last conversation about Colossians. Oh, nice. Nice.